0: Truth be told, I could probably help with confidence, but I don't want to, because confidence in the end is a feeling, and feelings, they come and go. And the feeling of confidence is, is a particularly interesting one, because again, it gets back to this idea of the myth, right? That champions are confident. And from my experience, that's actually not true. And I want to separate the action of confidence from the feeling of confidence.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum and you're listening to The Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Today we are joined by Dr. Peter Haberl. Dr. Haberl is a senior sports psychologist for the United States Olympic Committee, and he's one of the foremost experts on the application of mindfulness training for improving performance under pressure. In this episode, Dr. Haberl provides us with valuable insight regarding the difference between feeling confident and acting confident, habit formation, and why we should be seeking psychological flexibility rather than mental toughness. If you find this episode valuable, please leave us a review by simply going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. And now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Welcome Peter, glad to have you on today.
0: Good to be on, thank you.
1: So I wanna start with this. About 10 years ago, I heard about mindfulness and there was this kind of mystique around it, that it was religious, that it was mystical, that you had to be in a lotus pose to do it. And as a performance coach, a high performance director, I started looking at the research and started seeing something different than the view that I the aperture that I had on it. So what is mindfulness to you, Peter?
0: Well, what it is to me, it's really a tool to understand how the mind works so you can work with it in competition. But we can also obviously look at some of the definitions from from psychology that are being used, right? So, so one definition is is uh, has all to do has to do with attention, right? So, so the aiming of attention, Uh, the sustaining of attention, the regaining of attention, and doing that from the perspective of openness and curiosity and acceptance. Uh, So let's unpack that for a second, right? Attention obviously is hugely important for uh, for athletes, and actually go as far as saying that attention is the currency of performance. So the more you're in charge of your attention, the better off you are. But the way the mind works is it actually doesn't like to be in the present moment, it likes to wander off and this, this happens to athletes all the time, that their attention gets impacted by very often an internal distraction. This brings us back to the definition of mindfulness, right? This, this idea of, can I be aware of what's present in this moment? Can I be aware of where my mind is at? Uh, and perhaps how my mind is caught up in, in distraction. Uh, and when I'm aware of that, then I can actually do something about it. So mindfulness is all about being aware of what's going on in the present moment and to do that from a non-judgmental perspective and then with that, take charge of your attention and then, then take actions based on that. So how do you become more mindful? Uh, you become more mindful uh, by training it uh, in really two ways. One is this idea of formal training. So where you set aside time, to practice awareness and attention. Uh, And then one way is what's called informal mindfulness practice, where you bring this idea of mindfulness to an everyday activity or to your sport practice. Um, So let's come back to the formal practice, right? So I might might work on, uh, say, mindful sitting, where I choose to focus on my breathing, and every time my mind wanders off, and it will wander off, and it will wander off very quickly, uh, I then practice bringing my attention back to my chosen anchor attention, which in this formal practice would be breathing. You can do the same thing with mindful walking where I focus on the sensation of walking, right, and then my mind will wander off quickly, and I practice bringing it back. Uh, in informal practice, let's say we pick any sport really, right, I can take the same approach, where my aim is to pay attention to the activity I'm doing. And I also notice when that critical voice in my head pops up and is trying to distract me, I notice that voice and then refocus again on the activity. Interesting.
1: So is this beneficial for like an accountant or a mother or a father or just anybody in general? Uh, Well,
0: I'm not an accountant, but I'm a father. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I might start there. But even if I start with the accountant, I imagine an accountant has to focus. So when they're doing the numbers, right, they're paying attention to the task at hand. Uh, As they pay attention, again, the mind likes to wander off. And then again, the accountant would wanna notice that and bring attention back. But coming back to the father, right? So as a father raising children, invariably the children will push your emotional buttons really uh, yes <laughs> <I've got> three <laughs> uh, so, so so from that perspective right uh, as john Kevin puts it so well i think uh, kids are, are excellent mindfulness teachers so they push your buttons emotions come up and when those emotions come up uh, sometimes the emotions get the better of us and control our behavior we don't really want our emotions to control our behavior, we want our emotions to inform our behavior. And what mindfulness does, it creates some space between that firing up of the emotion and our response to it. So mindfulness allows us uh, to be more deliberate in choosing our response rather than have the emotion decide this, the response for us. That's brilliant.
1: I know I I catch myself Getting upset about things sometimes that don't matter. You know, you you have this inter monologue going on, and it gets interrupted by your child uh, in a situation, and then you you respond quickly, and then you're like, "Why did I? Why did I have to act that way?" So, is, does mindfulness require, or does it
0: include self discipline? Well, mindfulness is a practice, right? That then can, can become a way of being, but like any practice. It requires discipline, and it trains discipline. So if I engage in, say, a daily mindfulness practice, right, it takes discipline, but I also cultivate discipline.
1: Hmm. What about ancillary benefits, like emotional benefits, stress, health benefits, things like that?
0: Well, I think there's, there's a fairly extensive body of research that it's it's a you know useful tool when it comes to managing stress. One thing I want to be careful though is sometimes it's being sold as a bit of a panacea that cures all ills, right? As a, as a, as again as opposed to this is a discipline that you cultivate, that you practice. As you practice it, you get better at understanding how your own mind works, and then with that understanding comes comes the the opportunity and the invitation to more skillfully work with our minds. Hmm. So, so one thing I think that one thing, sorry, one thing that matters in this context, right, particularly for, for, for athletes is mindfulness the way I view mindfulness, not as a tool to be calm. And athletes always very often strive for being calm in crucial moments in competition, such as the Olympic games, right, which is sort of where I have experience in, in working with athletes in that environment. So so if you pursue mindfulness so you can be calm when you compete for the Olympic gold medal, from my perspective, that would be a mistake. Um, because in an environment where the outcome matters the world to you and where the outcome is highly uncertain, guess what emotion shows up.
1: A little bit of fear, a little anxiety.
0: little little fear, a little anxiety, little excitement. Exactly, right? So what won't show up most likely is this idea of being calm and being serene. So mindfulness is not about feeling calm. Mindfulness is about being able to act calmly in an environment where you won't feel calm.
1: That's awesome. I've heard you talk about this before, and I'd love if you would go into it again about the gallows.
0: Oh, the gallows. Well, this is, this is a famous quote from, from, from a British track cyclist, Chris Hoy, actually Sir Chris Hoy. He got knighted by the Queen of England because he won six gold medals at the Olympic Games over three Olympic Games. And in his autobiography, he describes his uh, first Olympic final in an event called the kilo. so it's the one-kilometer time trial where, where you race against the clock, basically. And he was the reigning world champion which meant that he got to go last in the Olympic final. So when you go last, right, you see everybody else's time come in. So as he watches time, these times of his competitors come in uh, from the last four guys, three of them broke the Olympic record. So they were really, really fast, right? So he describes how he felt in that moment. And he said, it's the only way to describe it. It feels like the gallows. So it feels like you're about to be hung, right? So when I ask my own big athletes, hey, do you want to feel this way? As you get ready to you know, compete in your final, the answer is always, no, I don't want to feel that way. Then I ask, well, well, why would you not want to feel this way? And 100% the answer is, if I would feel that way, I'd perform very poorly. So there's there's this myth out there in, in the minds of athletes that, in order to perform well, they have to feel the right way and they have to think the right way. It, it's a myth that's often fed by this idea that champions never experience uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. Uh, but nothing is farther from the truth, right? And this is why this quote from Chris Hoy is so powerful, it feels like the gallows, you're about to be hung. because the way he felt did not determine his performance. He goes on to describe in his autobiography that the way, the, fe- the way he felt was completely normal. It's how you're gonna feel when you prepare to ride the life, the ride of your life, as he puts it. And that's well put, right? So, so that tells me he is open to that unpleasant sensation. And because he's open and willing to feel what is to be felt, the emotion doesn't get in the way.
1: So if you know that it's going to feel like the gallows, I can think of a few situations in my life where I've gotten in front of a very, very large crowd, right? And you're excited to be there, but then you have this sick feeling in your stomach. Yep. You know that it's going to happen. So if I have practiced and trained to be mindful, then I'm aware
0: of this situation, and then what do I do with it? You're aware of the situation, you're aware of those feelings, right? You're open to them, you're willing to have them, and then you take charge of your attention. So rather than focusing on your feelings, right, you would focus on the task at hand. So in your example of being the speaker, you might focus on the audience in front of you and make eye contact with somebody, or or you might focus on your opening sentence, right? And start with that rather than getting caught up in A, how you feel or B, thinking that you need to change how you feel. So Chris Hoy here in this example, right? He talks about gripping the handlebars of his bike you can focus on that tactile sensation. He talks about listening to the clock counting back the start. So as I listen, 10, 9, 8, and so forth, right? As I tune into hearing, I am present, I'm in this moment, right? And as I focus on that hearing sensation, it's a lot more difficult for the thinking, judging mind to hijack my attention.
1: Interesting. Because
0: again, attention is the current performance, not thoughts, not feelings. I make the argument that as athletes, as people, we don't really control the thoughts that pop into our heads. Very simple exercise that I use to demonstrate is, okay, I grab a, grab a stopwatch, and I say once I hit start on the stopwatch, your job as the athlete is to have no more thoughts. Easy enough, right? So once I hit start, no more thinking. So I press the start watch, right? Within seconds, a thought will pop into your head. Just to demonstrate, you don't really control thinking from happening. What you control potentially is being aware of that and then taking charge of of attention.
1: So recently we had on uh, Veronica Campbell Brown. Veronica was one of my athletes for 15 years, so she's a. Oh, she won the gold medal in the 200 meters back to back. We can Yes. Mm-hmm. So I worked with a crew for a very long time of Olympic champions, and we have a very close relationship now. She actually, her and her husband live within minutes from me. We we're very very close, and so we we were on a podcast talking about the 2008 games in Beijing, which I think was her. We had actually never talked about this which in my mind was the greatest sprint event she'd ever run. And she confirmed. But the the scenario leading up to it was horrible. She was a favorite for Jamaican Trials to win the one and the two, and she didn't even make it for the one. So she does great in the trials, goes to the games. And it's so interesting. I'm listening to you talk about this and how she says she doesn't want to not feel anxious because if she's not feeling a little anxious, something's off. But she visualize she, she is, it's interesting to listen to you say this because that's what she does. She harnesses it and controls and puts her thoughts exactly where she wants them. And um, you've seen this, Peter, but there's people that do really, really well up until the finals. And actually the person that's run the most sub 10 second, 100 meter sprints in the history of, of the sprint events does terrible historically when it comes to the finals. And I would assume it's not because of biomechanics or the ability because when he is in stages where, you know, Diamond League races where it doesn't really matter, he does very, very well. But you see this, like, is so I mean, so when you say attention is the currency performance, I mean, that may be the deciding factor when it comes to the the pinnacle moment. Would you agree or disagree?
0: Uh, Yes. If you can get there. Yes. Well, we'll, you know, at, at that level, right, usually they're all in great shape. They all have great technique, you know, the nutritionist dialed in, right? So all those things being equal, what will make the difference is uh, the mental part, and that's what they do with their attention. Not, again, not how you, how they feel. And again, most of them will feel very uncomfortable.
1: Okay, so an athlete comes to you and says, Peter, help me to be more confident. What's your response?
0: Then I say, I can't help you with that. Okay, why? Well, when I give that response, right, I, the eyes kind of open up and, and, and the, the reaction is, "What what's your problem? Aren't you the hot sports psychologist? <laughs> and that's a good response because that also opens up some curiosity, right, in the athlete. Uh, because truth be told, I could probably help with confidence, but I don't want to because confidence in the end is a feeling and feelings, they come and they go. And the feeling of confidence is is a particularly interesting one, because again, it gets back to this idea of the myth, right? That champions are confident. And from my experience, that's actually not true. And I wanna separate the action of confidence from the feeling of confidence. The action I can take irrespective of how I feel and then the feeling actually comes afterwards. How often have you heard athletes say, you know, they won event X and then athlete says, I, I get a lot of confidence from this win. Yeah, because they did it. They did it, right? So they took an action and then the feeling came. Okay. So, so what I want to focus in, okay, what are the actions you want to take in your respect sport? And what might get in the way of those actions? So one action you want to take from my perspective is to be in charge of your attention and to be able to aim your attention on the here and now and not have your own, your own mind hijack your attention, right? So so another quote here, out of 11 times I've competed here, I have doubt every time. Would you want to be that athlete? Doubtful, 11 years. Uh-uh. No, right? You wouldn't, Okay. Well, the athlete who said that is one, Rafael Nadal, talking about the French Open. That at that time, he has won nine times. <laughs> and Nadal says, hey, you know, I win. And, you know, a couple of days later, I'm full of doubt again.
1: So there's a mythology around this whole thing then? That- there's a mythology on this whole thing, correct. So we've built up through media, through whatever you want to call it, sports writing, the whole thing, yeah. these people aren't invincible. They're not invincible and they have minds just like you and I do. So what separates in any field those that consistently can get it done, in your opinion, and those that can't? Besides talent and all that, you know right, what I'm saying? Right. Uh,
0: again, again, they, they understand, the ones who get it done, they understand how their mind works and they can work with it. How does the mind work? Well, the mind works in a thought and emotion producing factory. All day long, the mind loses thoughts and emotions that you don't choose to have, but they're being produced, right? And those thoughts and emotions have the potential to distract you from the here and now, from being present. Hence, my argument again, it's not thoughts and feelings that matter, it's attention. So, coming back to the confidence piece, that feeling, right? It's great if you have it, it feels wonderful, right? It feels wonderful. But let's take a complete example Tampa Bay Lightning last year in the NHL, right? They won the President's Trophy. They are super confident. They know they're going to win the Stanley Cup. They just know it because they ran away with the league. So the first round, they faced the Columbus Blue Jacket, a team that had never won a playoff round in their history, okay? But a team that had been very close for a number of years, knocking at the door. It's going to happen sooner or later. Okay? Very determined, very focused team. They win the first two games, and the Lightning never recover. And they lose the first round, right? Because they weren't aware, here's this feeling of confidence, and this feeling of confidence actually lulls me to sleep. And tells me, I got this in the bag when the outcome is uncertain, okay? So they were certain about the outcome. That's a really dangerous place to be at as an athlete or as a team. If the outcome is uncertain and it means the world to you, coming back as an equation, guess what will show up? An uncomfortable emotion will show up. Can you use that uncomfortable emotion to your advantage by being open to it, right? And again, by dialing in your preparation that was always in all the way into your pp performance routine, what you do there, right And again, what do you do with your attention? Wow
1: so Peter, you track hockey pretty well, huh?
0: Well, back in the old days, I used to be a professional hockey player back in my in know home country a long time ago so
1: let's let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. How did you get into hockey? Uh, they built
0: a rink in my hometown and my dad was involved <laughs> in that and started playing hockey when I was six years old.
1: So, you started playing at six, and then you became, I mean, to go from six to professional, that's a pretty big deal. Like, what was your connection to the sport? Did you love the sport? Was it something that was more of a communal thing? And that you know what I'm saying? Because everybody's journey to that is pretty different.
0: Uh, Yeah, it was definitely a communal thing, right? With with the rink being built in your hometown, small town, it's just something what we did and plenty of ice time, practice, got good at it, you know, like being good at things. So, it was just really, really fun. uh, find experience as, 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 a, as a kid growing up, you know, passionate for a sport.
1: So when you were playing professionally, did you know that you wanted to get into this world of performance psychology?
0: Uh, I did. Yes, I did. Uh, just, just, as I was playing, right, I became more aware of the difference in my play was almost always related to the difference in my head. So I just became really curious and, and wanting to, Better understand that and learn about that and study that, and uh, that then eventually led to this career in this field.
1: It's just interesting to hear like how people get into different areas, you know. Like, I'm just so glad you're on here today. I just have to tell you that. How do you help your athletes develop better habits or goal-directed behaviors? Because I'm sure that's something that they come to you with. Like, this is something I want to do. Or a coach comes to you and says, "Listen, they would be great if they
0: would just X, Y, and Z." Well, I think uh, my work sort of begins with with just listening, right? Um, and li- listening where they're at and what's happening to them, and then getting an idea of of what are they like when they're at their best, and what are they like when when they stumble. As we have that contrast, right? Look at what's the difference there. And again, from my perspective, difference almost always is comes back to attention. So there, there was a disruption of attention that triggered poor performance. That then being the case, okay, can we begin to, to train that ability to be aware, right? And can we cultivate that skill and make that more of a habit uh, so, so you'll be in a better position down the road when you face that big moment again? the skillfully work with the mind and then can we get into this habit of of practicing in our case here mindfulness right
1: so how do you create that habit how do you help somebody make this into a habit
0: well the, the first decision is is you know coming back a bit to the question of values what's important to me which is a little different than than what you mentioned earlier you know to be goal oriented right Every one of my athletes wants to win an Olympic medal. That's sort of a given. I don't have to ask about that. What's more important and what more interesting to me is, is why do you want to win a gold medal? So this question of why, you know, why is this important to you, begins to uncover values. And and as I uncover values, I want to separate values from goals. So goals are about a destination. Values are about a direction. Goals, once I reach them, I can check them off. Values I can't check off. Right? So so let's come back to our example of being a father or a husband, you know. So so getting married, that's a goal. You know, once I've been to City Hall or to the altar or sign the papers, check done. How I want to be in the marriage is a question of values. And how I want to be in the marriage that never stops, right? Same with I want to be a good father. It's not enough to give them a big Christmas gift. Uh, being a good father means showing up every day in a certain way. Um so I wanna I want the athletes to think a lot and deeply and repeatedly about what is it that they value. Because the values then actually guide behavior and the values trump the emotions that can get people away from the behaviors they wanna enact. So plenty of times, right, we don't feel like it. Or an athlete, I might not feel like training today. That's very normal, there's nothing wrong with that. But if I get caught up in that feeling, then that feeling again will dictate the behavior, will control the behavior. When in that moment when I don't feel well, I can tap into this value of, of, say, professionalism, right, or learning or mastery or getting better, then that value will trump the emotion in the moment. Again, fatherhood is not a good example, right? I mean, who wants to change diapers at 2 o'clock in the morning? Nobody. Nobody, right? Nobody, but, you know, some fathers help their wives and actually do that. That behavior is guided by a value. So the more aware I am of my values, the more I can use my values to trump the emotion in the moment.
1: Mm. This is good. This is really good because I have coaches. I I, I have worked with Olympic athletes, usually post college. Most of my work has been in the collegiate environment, and you get an eighteen-year-old who comes in, uh, and now that they're uh, just to be frank, the recruiting process has made people very um, entitled. Entitled.
0: Okay. Entitled.
1: And so they've been told how great they are, how great they are, how great they are. You know, you get mail every, it's a, it's a, it's a psychological campaign, mm-hmm. essentially. And the athlete comes in and they believe everything should be given to them. And now it's this cognitive restructuring that has to take place. And so then the coach is like, if they would only do. And and then you have to go back and say, well, you want to win, right? Yeah, yeah, I do want to win, but, you know. And it's very interesting that in the world you're in, you're dealing with somebody that has a very distinct goal four years from now to win a – you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the average person. You would say for them, if they have a a behavior that they want to accomplish, that they should consider the values behind that behavior? Yes.
0: Okay. That's where you you want to start –
1: because mm. that's enduring,
0: yes, mm. And again that the clarity on the values will allow me to weather the inevitable emotional storms that come up in life.
1: Last time I saw you speak, you talked about social media, the connectivity to the phone
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think, we both share some concerns about this. There's there's great things about living in a connected world. Like right now with COVID, you and I could be on a podcast, seeing each other in different parts of the world, and there's some type of human connection, which we need. But what are the things that you're concerned about with uh, social media
0: connectivity and this addiction to the phone? Well, first of all, you can just become a huge time suck, right? We're... Where you get preoccupied with things that in the end don't really matter, you know, with with whether that's how many likes you get or getting lost in in, uh, doom scrolling, getting lost in in Twitter. And again, from, you know, in my environment, the danger of the Olympic games is is social media can take you away from the present moment big time. Uh, And again, impair your ability to perform to your potential, you know, at the games. So, but, uh, you know, it's always on a personal level, right? This is, uh, how how much, how much, how much news do you need to actually consume? And, and, and that behavior can quickly become addictive. Uh, So again, where, where awareness really matters, right? Can I notice what's actually going on right now? Notice how I'm being trapped here in, in a, in a cycle of behavior that's not really uh, benefiting me. And then with that awareness, and with the awareness of what are my values, can I take uh, countermeasures, so to speak?
1: How do you deal with this issue with your own children? Do you have rules in your house? What's interesting was my
0: daughter, actually, she was funny because she didn't want a phone when she was growing up, and she didn't get one until she was 14. And, and that actually made a big difference in, in uh, how, how hooked she is to the phone, I think now. You know, now that she's five years older, my son got it earlier, and and looking back, that was probably a mistake, um, because it's harder now to sort of just lure him away, you know, like uh, to go outside, go for a hike, or go for a workout, or, right? Um, so 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 part of of the responsibility that I I think I have as a father is 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 to engage him in a conversation about being aware of of uh, how much time he spends on, on the device and how much he gets out of it, right? And also an awareness of when you engage in other activities, what you get out of that. Uh, so it's interesting, you know, sometimes we work out together, right? And, and he may not want to start, but once he starts and completes the workout, he always says how much fun that was afterwards.
1: So you're countering what you're missing out on or things you could have been doing. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Like when you, when you're yeah. engaging them in a minute. Yeah. Okay. Yes.
0: And that is where, where, where mindfulness comes in is right. Uh, so if you look at the work of someone like Charles Brewer in addiction and smoking cessation, so is, it, is it, it brings mindfulness to smoking cessation? And he makes this great argument that when you actually pay attention to what smoking feels like, Tastes like the awareness comes. This doesn't, actually, this doesn't actually feel good. So as I tune into to the sensation of what this experience of smoking a cigarette is like, right, I can become aware of, hey, this actually isn't feeling all that great. And then with that awareness, I can choose to engage in a different activity, right, or I can just ride the the wave of their craving, knowing that it'll pass. And then again, I regain control of my own actions rather than having the addictive habit control my behavior. Uh, so it has a lot to do with 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 uh, can I learn sort of to be in charge of myself? And by being aware of right and connected to my values, I'm going to be in better position to be in charge of myself.
1: I want to ask you something that's personally interesting to me the idea of developing mental toughness in general. I'll just ask you some straight up questions. Do you believe that mental toughness is task specific or can somebody be tough to everything in the world? Well, can I, can I uh,
0: take a step back first? Sure. And cause I, I do not like the word mental toughness. Great. And I don't use it with my athletes because tough to me, as I think of tough, I think of rigid, inflexible. Okay? Uh, So what I'm after is actually being flexible psychologically rather than tough. So when when, when we have this conversation about toughness, right, what comes up is when I'm tough, I don't have any negative emotions. I don't have any unpleasant thoughts. Well, A, that's not how it works. And B, if you buy into that, more often than not, you're into big trouble. So someone who's tough all the time, right, usually has a very hard time to relate to somebody else that might be struggling or actually to relate to themselves when they might be struggling. So when I have this image of, hey, I'm tough, right, but I'm actually really hurting inside, and I'm going to not deny that feeling, and then guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn towards alcohol or drugs or some kind of escape. The idea of being tough should be, in my mind, discarded, as opposed to, again, I want to be flexible, right? So I want to know what comes up in the situation. I want to be aware of the emotions and use the information they provide to guide my behavior again, rather than have the emotion control me or getting caught up in, I got to suppress this emotion and keep a lid on it. Cause the more I suppress it, the more it's going to bubble up. Right. And that's why we see these tough guys sort of lose their mind and do crazy, stupid stuff.
1: This is good. So maybe another word let's talk about is resilience then. Cause When I, have been in the football, American football culture. Okay. So there's a lot of, um, just things that people hang on to. Yeah. Right. And they think about somebody that can, you know, if you're the tougher team, you're going to be, you know, when it comes down to it, you're going to be able to grind it out. That's kind of the context for that word. But I, in my opinion, what they're really saying is I want the team that when it's all on the line, they can execute. Because if you, that they can execute what they're supposed to do, when they're supposed to do it, how they're supposed to do it. So, what would you call that then?
0: Well, first of all, this ability to execute comes back to, right, attention as the currency performance. Mm. Can that be in the moment, right? And then use the word resilience. And so, resilience um, is, is the way some of the sports psychology researchers define it is this ability. play to your potential when it matters the most. And again, that has to do with being flexible psychologically, where I'm aware of uh, what's on my mind. I can make room for that. Um, I can put my attention in the present moment in a flexible way, and I take actions guided by my values rather than by my emotions. This is fantastic. Have you
1: done much speaking or engaging with uh, American football? No, No. I have not. No. Okay. That would be an interesting exercise. Uh, Things are shifting in that world because coaches are starting to understand more about things like mindfulness. I know there's one team, Clemson University, every Monday their team does mindfulness as a group together. This kind of goes, you know, when you have people in a cohesive environment doing things like this, I don't know if that's optimal for the benefit that you want, but then there's the opportunity, this is a whole other topic we don't need to get into, but mental models and sharing a mental model as a team, cohesive group to be able to move together, that, that requires a tremendous amount of awareness. Correct. No, thank you for talking about that because that's, uh, that's been something that in the world of I, in starting in strength to conditioning and then moving to high performance a lot of coaches have put pressure on the strength and conditioning coach. It's your job to make the team tough by doing these exercises, by doing these drills or these very difficult training sessions where you're running you know, X amount of distance and pushing them to their absolute limit. And my counter to that has always been, that's not specific to the game. Like When, when I've been in tough situations, I'm a jiu-jitsu athlete. I'm not thinking about, the other trading session, I'm trying to be flexible and agile and recall what to do in the moment when I'm there. And so there's things to me that are general, and then there's specific. And so, do you see that at all? Do you have you experienced
0: this? Well, yes. I think again, I want to have understanding right. What context are you in? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I come back. Let me come back to Chris Hoy and use him as, as an example, perhaps. So track cycling, right? they have to dig really deep. So he uses this quote from his book. When I dig as deep as I can, I dig a little deeper still. That's really fascinating, right? When I dig as deep as I can. So your mind says, I'm digging as deep as I can. Then I dig a little deeper still. So he's saying, he's aware, here's that internal dialogue. He say, who says, you're going all out. Great, good, just hold it there and then he pushes a little more. For a sport like his, that's where it's gonna take, right? And those track cyclists, when they do their workouts, they often work out so hard that they throw up afterwards because they've built up so much lactic acid, right? Yeah. With that though, all right, has to come an awareness that today is actually not the day to dig deeper. Because today I still might be, and this is more, more I think, you know, in, in your area of expertise, I haven't fully recovered yet. Yeah. But just because my mind says, "Hey, I'm tough, let's go," you know, squeeze it out. Today actually is not today. Okay. And then to have the wisdom, right, to choose appropriately is, I think, what you want to cultivate in an athlete. Mm. This gets back to your earlier point of, of being flexible, right, of oh. adjusting to. What's actually going on and what's what's the most skillful response right now? Mm.
1: Also a sport like cycling, it's kind of like billiards in a way, where it's unidirectional. There's a singular focus, there's technical components to it, but yeah. it's an output-based sport. Right. The more complexity you add to the field, the more you have to, you know, the the saying, see a little, see a lot, see a lot, see nothing. You know, you have these novice decision makers, and it's like they're just all over. I can't, you know. I remember the first time I stepped onto the co- the football field in college, my head about spun off. You know, you have a hundred thousand people in the stadium, and you don't know where. You know, you've been practicing, uh, and so I can I can understand how mindfulness would be so much even more important because now I've really got to know where do I want to place my focus right right now. That is just. It's beautiful. And it's what's it's so encouraging to me is I've been able to start using this in my personal life because I I, I call it the rabbit hole. And I'm really bad at this. I'll just be on a walk or something. And all of a sudden I'm down this deep hole somewhere and I'm chasing thoughts. Right. And sometimes it's okay because that's where you come up with ideas. But other times I'm walking with my wife and I'm like, I need to be here. And this practice I've started using myself has really made a big impact in my personal life. And I can just imagine for you, you know, I know, I know you, you practice yourself and
0: with your athletes.
1: I'm sure you hear stories of how it's impacted other areas of their lives.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's a wonderful example, Eric, that you give, right? As well as a really powerful metaphor of going down a rabbit hole. Because um, I think we all do that. And certainly one thing that I remember a lot is is you know when the kids were little reading bedtime stories to them. And as I'm reading the story, I'm actually not there. My mind's someplace else, right? And and with mindfulness, you can cut this ability to notice, hey, I'm actually going down a rabbit hole. Okay. And now with that awareness, I can choose to go down the hole or come back. And when you're on, you know, as as you were saying on the walk with your wife, it's a really good idea to be present.
1: I don't want to miss those moments. Yes. Like I said, I have an eight, a four and a newborn. And last night I'm in bed reading to my two kids. I'm like, I want to be here right now. I don't want to miss this, you know. Mm -hmm. And I just I'm so glad that you came on because I think this is we have become such a distracted world. And the more technology and the more – the I will say this, the the one of the benefits of COVID, there's always going to be something good that can come out of things, no matter how horrible the situation is, is that I think people are going to value each other more. I, I don't know about you. I mean, with all the stuff going on in the world, I was on a bike ride today. I, I, I exercised right before lunch, and it's so interesting that before COVID, people would just go right by. But now people are waving at each other, going as fast as they can, waving at each other. Or, you know, I had to stop and turn around and this older gentleman was coming across the road and we just had this cool little chat. But it was like we were craving for interaction. And I hope that um, with all the, the crap that's going on in the world right now, that people are a little bit more mindful about those interactions. And they don't take it. Just going to the grocery store is fun now. I mean, now that I, you know what I'm saying, that the lines aren't at the door. Like, I look forward to interacting with the person at the checkout counter. I don't know about you.
0: Well, I think, yeah, I think the potential for that growth is is there, right? One of the wonderful stories I heard early on in the pandemic, you know, is this this fella going to the supermarket and just seeing how distressed the employees were because they're on the front line, right? A Little protection, and then. Uh, he he praised the cashier for the courage to show up to work, mm. and he could see that person just rise with pride. Right, so so to offer a small token of kindness made all the all the difference. Right, and I think we could all do better at that of be more kind to our fellow human beings, you know, and again, the example you uses as well is with these interactions you had on the bike, that, that could very well make a big difference. Yes, absolutely.
1: Well, I don't think there's a better place to stop than right here Yeah, and just to be a little bit more kind. And so, Peter, I'm so thankful for you being with us today, and I'm excited about the games coming up whenever we have them, because I'm going to be looking for you, and we're just so excited for you and the work that you're doing with you and your athletes. Well, thank you, Eric.
0: Yes, I'm excited too about the games coming up. And I do hope they'll come up because they'll be amazing. But you won't see me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You'll be in the stands or something.
0: I'll be in the background. All
1: right. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, would you please help us by providing a review simply by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Also, if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Quorum, Twitter at Eric Quorum, Facebook at Eric Quorum, and LinkedIn at Eric Quorum.